Ephesians. We've been going through the book of Ephesians, and today we are going to cover chapter 3, which, in case you didn't know, the book of Ephesians is really kind of cut into two halves. Chapters 1 through 3, which is where we have been for the last four weeks, including today. Chapters 1 through 3 are deeply theological, where Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus and the other churches in the region that would have received this cyclical letter. He's talking to them about the profound eternal truths of God's plan before he even said, let there be light, how he had a plan to redeem mankind through Jesus Christ on the cross and all of the implications of that, of God's infinite wisdom and power And how not only that, but there in chapter 2, we saw the plan of the gospel of grace, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then beyond that, last week we talked about how Paul taught that Jesus Christ on the cross was removing the wall of hostility that was separating God and man being sin and the wall of hostility that was separating Jew and Gentile. In Jesus Christ, he creates this one new body of people, the church, where it's no longer what's your background, what's your race, what's your history. It is, are you in Christ or not? And if you are, you are part of the church. You have a place in the family of God. And for three chapters for us, remembering this letter and all the letters in our New Testament were not written with chapters and verses. They were letters, like we might write to one another. But for our sakes, it's helpful that they have chapters and verses. But remembering that this entire unit of what we have as chapters one through three, all of that is teaching us profound eternal theology about God that then in chapters four through six, we begin learning about the implications that this theology has on our churches, the way that we do church, the implications it has on our families, the way that we deal in marriage, the way that we parent, and then also, of course, the implications it has on us individually in our personal lives, the way that we live in light of these profound theological truths. So today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Paul here says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Remember, Gentiles are people who were not Jews, so pretty much every one of us probably. Assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here's that same word, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We've already talked in the last few weeks about this term, the mystery, quite a bit. Why is that? If you haven't been here for the last few weeks, then you have missed a little bit of the context of this letter that Paul 
in this was very much addressing Gnosticism that was rising that day. The idea is that there's this secret hidden knowledge that if you learn these spiritual secret knowledge uh, passwords, you can ascend through the different tiers of angelic uh, realities and all this nonsense. In much of this letter, Paul is setting straight those misconceptions that are starting to grow about God um, in the Asia Minor region, um, and especially here in the city of Ephesus and other regions that were close to it. So Paul is addressing this idea and saying, well, no, that's not true. There is a mystery, but that mystery is revealed in Christ Jesus Not only is it revealed in Christ Jesus, it is fulfilled and accomplished in Christ Jesus. Now, this chapter 3 has some interesting grammar things to consider. (laughs) Um, Essentially, it starts with, for this reason, all right? That's what verse 1 said, for this reason. See, after chapter 2, where Paul preaches the gospel saying, hey, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's saying all of us were dead in sin. All of us did what our flesh wanted under the influence of Satan and demonic powers. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. And then he goes into what is one of the most famous concepts and passages of Scripture. By grace, you have been saved through faith not of works, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The gospel summary of Ephesians chapter two then lends to him talking about the separation of Jews and Gentiles. Remember, there's a Jew and Gentile was the original separation of humanity. Either you were born a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, or you weren't. Most of us, Gentiles. I'm like an eighth Jew, uh, but if you're not fully Jew, you're, you're Gentile. And so this letter was written to a church that was more Gentile than it was Jew. There were more Gentiles in Asia Minor, what's modern day Turkey, than there were Jews. And so this letter is talking a lot to Gentiles. And so in chapter two, Paul is saying this hostility of sin that separated God and man and separated Jew and Gentile has been removed in, uh, in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. And he's saying for this reason, because of everything that we've just talked about, and he's about to launch into this prayer. In fact, if you look at verse 14, we can see this same phrase. He says, for this reason, And scholars, and especially those who are familiar with the Greek language, are saying what's evident here is that Paul starts a thought and he says, for this reason, and he's about to go into prayer, being spurred into prayer after preaching all this truth. And then he has a thought, and that thought is interrupted and leads to another thought, and leads to another thought, and leads to another thought. And for 13 verses, he doesn't get to where he was going. We've never done that before. This is the equivalent of me saying, well, You know, I know I'm one of those God-awful Cowboys fans, and as a Cowboys fan, 
Yes, for the last 25 years, it's been really embarrassing to be a Cowboys fan. One, because Jerry Jones and what he does, and then the fact that we haven't won a championship for 25 years, and every year Cowboys fans are like, it's our year, even though nothing's changed, and there's no reason to place any hope in the fact that anything's going to change, or any idea that we would even win a championship, but we're still like, it's our year. And I've been at restaurants where there's Cowboys fans who are saying, it's our year, and I'm like, would you just let the thing play out? And then there's a guy who's standing there cheering because Jason went and caught a touchdown, and he says, yeah, go Whitman, even though his best friend's wearing a Witten jersey. Come on, Cowboys fans. That's kind of what Paul's doing here, not quite. Um, that's a really practical, uh, non-theological illustration of what's happening here, that Paul, he's about to go into something. And he says, for this reason, being spurred on by everything that happened from chapters one and two, in light of all that, for this reason, he's about to go into this prayer but he interrupts himself. And that leads to one thought, which leads to another thought, which leads to another thought. And he realizes, you know what? There's a few more things I want to say about this whole Gentile thing, this whole uh, fact that they're brought into the family. And so he says a few more things here. Let's look at that again. Verse one, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, um, a, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on the behalf of you Gentiles, saying I'm not a prisoner of Rome, even though I am a Roman prisoner. The only reason I'm in prison is because Jesus Christ wants me in prison for the sake of ministering to Gentiles. And so he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. You know, that is assuming, <laughs> assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, saying, I'm assuming you've heard Remember, this is a letter that would have been passed around to churches in the area, not just Ephesus. And so even though he was in Ephesus longer than he was anywhere and had a deep relationship with the Ephesians, he knows other people that he has not personally met are hearing this. And so he says, I assume that you've heard about how God gave me ministry to the Gentiles, that he gave me stewardship to, over that ministry. So I'm assuming you've heard about that. Uh, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, saying these things that I read in what were the opening chapters, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Meaning this mystery that not only was God's people Israel, but actually all of mankind is what God's goal was not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. He said, this mystery has now been revealed to the apostles and prophets. Verse six, this mystery is, here's the mystery he's saying, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, there are some obstacles that we have as modern Westerners, English speakers, that we don't see in the Greek text here. Those phrases that we see, fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers. In Greek, you would see that all of those words for us in English transliteration start with S-Y-N, like synonym or synonymous or synchristic. That when they rendered these phrases out, it would actually be like, uh, that heirs together or members together of the same body, partakers together of the promise. And so Paul is drilling down a little bit further, something that we would have heard that renown of those words and gone, man, he's, he's emphasizing this on purpose and he's making a point. 
And after talking about in chapter 2 how Jesus Christ removed that separator between God and man and the separator between Jews and Gentiles, it was the same separator being sin, he says, I'm going to go a little further into this and delve in just so we don't think that Jews, uh, that Gentiles are, okay, they're not really in, they're invited to the party, but they're different. Paul is going, no, let me drill a little bit down deeper in here and really get to the root that we are truly one in Christ. And he talks about this by pointing out the fact that we're now fellow heirs or heirs together, that we have an inheritance with the Jew. If you were a Jew and you're hearing this in ancient Israel, you're going, oh, whoa, 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 no. I'm a Jew. I'm of my father Abraham the Gentiles, they can come and worship our God and they can serve our God and they can obey the commandments and sacrifice like we do to be in right relationship with God. But the inheritance, eh, they're not of Father Abraham. They're not born of the line. And Paul is coming in with this mystery that was hidden forever that is now revealed that no, actually, God's plan was not just for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Israel and that country, that what he was doing through that country and then bringing about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was actually for all people groups of the world, Jew and Gentile, which for modern Americans is good news. That's really good news that God's not saying, sorry, Americans, you're not born descendants of Abraham. So let's think about this heirs of the inheritance for a minute. And let's think about this promise for a minute. What, what is that inheritance? What are these promises? And being mindful too for the Jew, this is actually kind of an offensive statement. We see this in Luke chapter 15, which we've talked about before, the prodigal son. You're familiar with the story where there's the son who receives his inheritance from the father earlier than he should have, goes away and wastes it all on sinful prodigal living. And then comes to his senses when he's eating food from pig troughs, pig slop, and goes, you know what? Even my father's hired servants, even my father's workers are eating plenty of good food. <sighs> Maybe I should put my tail between my legs and go back home and just ask my dad if he'll hire me so that I can actually have a decent meal and work for it. We know the story, right? He goes home. The father sees him while he is still a long ways off, runs out to meet him, embraces him. And the son begins his recited speech of, you know what, dad, I'm not worthy. I have sinned against you and against God. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Make me one of your hired servants. And the father doesn't even acknowledge this request. He says, bring the robe. Put the robe on him. Bring the ring, the family signet. Put it back on his finger. Go get the sandals and put them on his feet. Go kill the fatted calf. We're about to party because my son who was dead is alive. He was gone. He's home. He's back. Let's party. But the story doesn't stop there because there's another character there, right? There's the older brother who's out in the field working for his dad. The older brother who never went away the older brother who felt, you know what, I've been doing a good job taking care of my dad's stuff. And the older brother hears the party, hears the music, hears the boop, doo, 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 doo. Nope. And he's like, whoa, what? Hold on, something's going on. I didn't know we had a party planned today. Let's go back. And he goes back to the house and he's like, dad, what's going on? And dad's like, bro, 
your brother's back. Wait, that's what this is about? That little brat who went away, not only went away, he asked for his inheritance early, which is dad, that's like him saying you're dead to me. He asked for his inheritance early, went away and wasted it on sinful living, has nothing to show for it, not bringing anything back to contribute. I've been here working the whole time, faithful to you, and you never even gave me a goat. You never even took me and my friends to Chili's. But here you've killed the fatted calf for this brat. And then the father's heart comes out, son, your brother was dead. Your brother and is alive again. And we've got to remember this passage, this parable that Jesus was teaching in Luke 15 its greater context is that he was talking to all these religious Pharisees who were not cool with the idea of sinners and wicked people, outsiders, Gentiles, being accepted and loved and welcomed by Jesus. And so here we have Gentiles. Paul is preaching saying, hey, here's the great news, guys. This wasn't just for the Jew. It's for the Gentile also. And guess what? The Jews weren't just invited to the party and they're the B team that sits way over tucked in the corner because they're outsiders and they're different. In fact, in chapter two, he said, those who were far off have been brought near. You've been ministered peace with God through Jesus Christ the same way that those are near have had peace ministered through Jesus Christ. Everyone, the near Jews and the far off Gentiles have been given peace with God through Jesus Christ because they all had sinned. And so this heir, this promise, let's go to Galatians chapter three, just a few pages back in your Bible, to the church in Galatia, which is also in modern day Turkey, in the same area, so to speak. Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. And in verse 15, he says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made, notice there, promises. That's what we talked about from Ephesians 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, he's saying 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham, the law came to Moses. That's what he's saying. 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so to make the promise void. So he's saying right here to the Galatians, he's saying that covenant that I promised to Abraham when I made a covenant with Moses through laws and commands, it didn't cancel that out. They worked in harmony. That covenant promise, promise to Abraham to give him an inheritance still stood even when this covenant was made with Moses with the law. So as to make the promise void, verse 18, for if the inheritance, remember we're talking about being heirs, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Wait, okay, so what, Abraham, how, who, huh? What Paul is saying here to the church in Galatia is that there was a promise given to Abram. Remember in chapter 12 of Genesis, God says to Abram, hey, I want you to pack up 
leave your family, leave your home, leave everything you know, go into a land that you don't know. I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to prosper you and make your descendants great. And you'll be the father of many nations and your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And Abraham's like, that's hard to believe because I'm in my 80s and my wife is still barren, but okay, I believe you, God, and he obeys. And then if we look later at chapter 15, the same kind of situation happens where it's been a while and God revisits Abram and says to him again, hey, just remember, here's my promise. At this point, it's been a while. And Abraham says, you know, you know, God, I, I want to believe you, but at the same time, my wife is still barren and we don't have a son. And so my inheritance is going to go to my servants. So what's going on? And God tells Abraham one more time. He doubles down and says, no, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be many. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And Abraham says, okay, I believe you. Now, if we look back at chapter 12, I want to point out something really quick. This wasn't in my notes, but I'm just going to flip there really quick. Something we need to pay attention to was that when God gave this covenant promise, the promise to Abram, I'm going to read this from verse one. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here we go. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what does that mean? God's made this promised covenant to Abram saying, I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna give you many descendants. You're gonna be the father of many nations. And through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, that must mean that, okay, God's gonna prosper him, make him filthy rich, and that wealth is gonna keep on passing and building generation after generation. And someday Israel's gonna be so overwhelmingly blessed and prosperous that they're just gonna give money to the whole world, right? That's not what that means. And let's look and consider one more time as we look just really quick at verse or chapter 15 after the second time when God reiterates this promise in verse 6. It says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. When God spoke to Abram, Abram believed what God said. And God said, you know what? Since you believe me, you're righteous before me. Meaning we're in right relationship. You're not estranged from me because of sin anymore. Because you believed in what I said. Even though the cross had not come yet. The whole book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11, is teaching us that all these Old Testament patriarchs who had faith in God were counted righteous just like Abraham, the same way that Ephesians chapter 2 taught us that we're saved by grace through what? Faith. Saved by grace through faith. So what does that mean for what we were just reading in Galatians chapter 3? Well, let's look again at verses 26 and 29. 26 through 29, it says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized, in just a minute, we're going to have a baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew 
nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring? Huh. Heirs according to the promise. See, not only is this something that there's the, the God and his covenant people having their festivities and the Jews, are, the Gentiles are invited saying, you can come enjoy the party too, but stay over in your corner because you're not quite in your B class. Well, you know, we're, we're just happy to be here. No, he's saying, actually, anyone and everyone who has faith in Christ is grafted into the family, adopted as sons and daughters of God, where we're not sitting here going, man, I wish I was like them, but at least I'm in, so that's cool. No, we're heirs together. Heirs of what? What's the inheritance? What's the promise? I'm glad you asked. Let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 7 of Galatians. It says this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Talking about in the Old Testament here, it says this, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What was the blessing of Abraham? Was it prosperity and riches and wealth? Sure, those were symbolic imagery of the blessing that would come with the obedience. But what is the true blessing? Right there, that we are given faith or we are giving righteousness, justification. Our relationship with God is fixed just like Abraham's by having faith in God. Now, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel where it's like, if I have enough faith and I confess things, then God's going to give me a Lexus and I'll never get sick. That's error. What we're saying here, how it's manifest right here and how every nation through Abraham would be blessed. How is that? That just like Abraham, when we place our faith in Jesus, we become heirs of that promise. What's the inheritance? Right relationship with God having our sins forgiven by believing in Jesus Christ is our inheritance. Our hope in this life, our hope in the life to come is secure in faith in Jesus Christ. That is the inheritance. And he says we're heirs by faith of Father Abraham. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, you probably are able to sing along with Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Nobody? I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, Father. Okay, we'll stop. Please stop. See, yeah, if you didn't grow up that way, you're like, I'm kind of glad I didn't grow up that way. That's a little weird. I sang that song, learned that song, knew that song, never understood that song. Father Abraham, why is he my father? He's the father of all who are in faith because he is the one to whom the promise was made and he believed the promise. And because of believing God's promise, it was credited to him as righteousness. And we had just last week been in Ephesians chapter 2 
where we see that we're saved by grace through, come on, say it loud, saved by grace through, not of works. See, this is what the self-righteous Jew, the self-righteous Pharisee wants. They want to say, okay, well, yeah, you want to acknowledge that our God's the true God? You should. Um, And if you want to, yeah, you can worship him. But fellas, buckle up. You got to get circumcised. Ouch. And uh, you also got to obey all the law. And uh, you've got to be baptized in a mikvah. And you've got to do all these different things uh, if you really want to worship and follow and serve our God. And at the same time, you're not going to be heirs of Abraham. You're going to be welcomed in and you can worship God and experience the blessings of obeying him. But then Paul receives revelation from God. He's saying in Ephesians chapter three, saying, the Lord revealed to me and to all the apostles and prophets, the truth of this mystery, the God's plan, even though he needed to reveal his plan through a man, Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, Jacob who would become Israel, Israel who would have 12 sons that would become the tribes of Israel, that would become the nation of Israel, even though he needed to reveal his plan and set up his plan and reveal who he was and reveal his will and reveal his way through this man and through this people. It was all ultimately pointing to the new covenant where God through Jesus Christ is redeeming all peoples, which is great news for us Gentiles, where we're not brought in, where we're like the the B team, where God really rejoices over the Jews who have faith, and I'm glad you're here too, bud. To the Gentiles, no, we are embraced and welcomed and received and rejoiced over, where we continue back In Ephesians chapter 3, where we see, wait, that's Philippians. We did that a long time ago. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, he's saying this because he killed Christians, before he was saved. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the the, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What does that mean? It's a long story short, and I don't have time to give all the context, but if you go to 1 Peter, you can see that the angels were also hanging on the edge of their seat, waiting to see this mystery revealed, because even they didn't know it. And even they're hanging on the edge of the seat. What's the father doing? What's he doing now? What do you want us to do? You want us to do? Okay, sure. But what are you ultimately doing? Even the angels didn't even know. That's what he's saying here. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Realized doesn't mean, aha, I realized. That's meaning he made it happen. Just like if I had plans and I realized my plans, he's saying he made his plans happen. That he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness. Oh, wait a minute. The, The Gentile. 
The one who's been invited to the party is not coming in going, hey guys, how's it going? It's me. Are we cool? To the Gentiles, he's saying, we have boldness when we come and access with confidence through our faith in him. Not according to what we've done, because the Jew is a sinner just like the Gentile. Why do we have boldness when we come to the metaphorical party? Because he called me son and he adopted me into the family and he doesn't see me differently, but he welcomes me, welcomes you and I. We have access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Saying, don't be discouraged that I'm suffering. This is all for your good and it's for the glory of God. See, what we see here is that there's no difference that God truly did make one people out of the two. This mystery that's been hidden forever that God wasn't just the God of the Jew. He's actually the one true living God over all of creation. And he said, I'm going to display my goodness in that I'm not just going to redeem this chosen people. I'm going to use this chosen people to help tell my story and set the stage for when I turn history on its head, on the cross, paying for the sin of mankind, whereby anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ can confidently, boldly come to the Father because we are all one in Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 14, he picks up. Remember earlier, what did verse 1 say? For this reason, meaning he's coming out of everything that's been said in the first two chapters, all that gospel preaching, and out of that he says, man, in light of all that, for this reason, I, Paul, and he goes off on all his rabbit trails, This is the point where he goes, now what was I saying? Oh yeah, oh yeah, for this reason. (laughs) And now he's going to go into this prayer. This for this reason essentially is in all the stuff that's been in chapters one and two. So he's saying for this reason, meaning since God had a plan to adopt us into his family before the world began, since God has brought us from death to life and brought us back through Jesus's blood on the cross, since he has set us free from the prince of the power of the air, since he has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus, since Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility between God and man, since Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, since he has created this new body called the church, since this entity called the church is made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every background, every race, every class, every income level, since God has taken all of those dividers away and united all in Christ, for this reason, or these reasons, what does he say? I bow my knees to the Father. All of the beautiful, profound, rich theology that we have in chapters one through three, he's looking at all of it after he's preaching it about God's incredibly wise plan to redeem mankind and the way that he exacted it through Jesus Christ on the cross and how he saves us by grace through faith. Those of us who were dead in sin, he's made us alive together with Christ. All of that causes Paul to go, man, for this reason, I just got to bow my knee to the Father. 
all that stuff just changes my posture. See, beholding the brilliance of God's redemption, we respond in humble adoration. When we behold, when we step back and we look at the big picture that Ephesians is trying to paint for us, especially in chapters one through three, when we look at the big picture of what God planned and accomplished, what he did for us, man, Paul's only response is, I've just, I gotta bow my knee to that father. Because of this, we, we simply cannot behold such wisdom, such sovereignty, such unlimited power, such grace, such mercy, such forgiveness, such love, such justice all together and respond with, oh, well, that's neat. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I guess, you know, that's good. So what, so what for me? Like I, I go to church once a week now? That's what I do in light of that? Paul's saying, man, for this reason, from all of that, I just got to bow my knee to the Father. This changes everything in the life of the person who believes it. I've said it before. I'll probably say it 50 more times in my life whenever I'm preaching. Who knows? I love the C.S. Lewis quote where he said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If false, is of no importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. What's C.S. Lewis saying, the brilliant theologian apologist? He's saying, if this is true, if everything that we've just read in the last three chapters is legit and true, then it means everything. It is of first priority. It affects our worldview. It is the lens through which we see life. It is the drive by which we act and behave and live. It means everything. He says, if it's not true, it means nothing. Throw your Bibles away. Stop coming to church. Go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, so we might as well just live it up. If it's not true, stop coming to church. But if it is, it it cannot be moderately important. These truths cannot make us go, that's cool. I guess I can make some time here and there. I guess, you know, uh, I can try and do some good stuff every now and then. You know, I'm going to try and keep on being a good person. If this is true, it has implications on any and every area of the life for the person who believes it. You cannot behold these things and simply respond with mediocrity. See, the spectacle of God's plan, God's purposes, God's exacting or, or accomplishing his plan, this scandalous grace of adopting rebellious sinners back into his family, sends Paul to his knees. So the question for us is, does the gospel send us to our knees? Or does it make us go, really, the pastor's talking about the gospel again? Come on, Pastor Stephen, like how many times, like how often are we gonna talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins? Seriously? Like, are we ever gonna get to the deeper stuff There is nothing deeper than the mystery that was hidden and revealed and accomplished in 
Christ. And if we have a desire for more or different or greater, it's because we have taken our eyes off of the one who's capable of captivating us for eternity. When we are eternally face to face with Jesus Christ, the gospel will have caused eternal praise and elation. You ever tried to explain something to your kids that you're like, oh, you're going to love it. And they're like, no, I won't. And you're like, you just don't understand because you're a kid, but someday you'll understand you'll love it. And I remember when I was a kid thinking, man, I'm always going to dress super cool with dinosaurs on my shirt. <laughs> and my parents were like, actually, you probably won't, but that's cute. We can't even understand how much we are going to love worshiping Jesus face to face. Like we have an idea. We know we have a foretaste and the Holy Spirit in us, giving us that appetite, giving us that hunger, giving us that desire to worship God. But it's like the father telling the kid, you're going to love it. I know you can't, you don't get it, but you're not going to care about anything else. You're not going to care about anything else. This touches every area of our life. Does the gospel send our hearts to, to bent knee? How can we hear? How can we see? How can we know? And not let our life be a response of bended knee. How can we? By being like the Pharisees who heard it and had their hearts hardened and were offended by the fact that it made them look bad rather than humbled them into the gracious gift that was offered. To the person who thinks that they're pretty good, the gospel's offensive. It says, you're not good, you need a savior. And we're really good at thinking we're pretty good. We're really good at thinking we're pretty good. And I'm gonna do my part. And the little messes I make, Jesus will come back as the janitor sweeping up behind me. And we tag team together to keep me clean. And Jesus is going, no, actually, it's not that you're making messes here and there. It's that you're dead in sin. And your only hope is if you place your faith in what I did on the cross in exchange for you. Paul then goes on in chapter 3, in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's like, everybody came from the Father. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Meaning God, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives you strength and power so that, that's important, always pay attention to words like that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. The power, the ability to comprehend with all the saints, all the believers, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to know what you can't know. The love of Christ is unknowable. It's too high, it's too deep, it's too broad, it's too long, but through the Holy Spirit, you can have that knowing in you, that sense, that feeling, that man, whoa, what kind of love does God have for us? Like I can't, and I can't, but whoa, the Holy Spirit's made this real in me. You might be thinking, that's a tall order. Taking someone like me, who is just habitually prone to sin that I, I can't change, I, I, I try and I can't. You think, God, God can't really do this. My, my family member, they just won't change. 
That's just too tall of an order. God fills tall orders. There's no order taller than God. And we see that in the next verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. How is this possible? How can the wicked heart that once sin, once evil, how could that possibly be turned into a heart that delights in God and gets excited to come to church and excited to talk with other believers and excited to pray and excited to get in the word? How is that even possible? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all we could above all we could even ask and even think like the most impossible thing you think God can do, he can do more. You're not beyond the grace of God. I don't care how bad you think you are. I don't care if you're sitting here, oh, if, he only, if pastors even knew what I did, he is able to bring you back into the family, to the praise of his glory. And then from that, that prayer of all this rich theology, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, therefore, I urge you to walk in the manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. That'll be the next few weeks. God, I pray today, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would do what only you can do, that my words can't do, that no inspiration can do, no, no person's white-knuckled determination can accomplish. God, I ask you to open eyes today to help people see their need for Jesus Christ and the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ. I pray that you would whet appetites with a hunger and a desire for you today. I pray that you would bring people to repentance where they would see their sin, acknowledge it for what it is, repent of it, and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And that when they do, and have the confidence, the boldness to come to you because of what you've made available simply through faith. I ask you to give that faith today. Give the measure of faith. Bring sinners into relationship with you, Jesus. We thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name.